What a beautiful song and a great reminder for this morning of the kind of love that God has for us who are in Christ Jesus. Just so that you uh, all know, uh, we will have a Christmas e-message next week. So I know that sometimes Pastor John has a series leading into into Christmas, but this uh, morning we will have a not-so-Christmas message. It's from Philippians 2, 14, but I trust by God's grace it'll still be good uh, for our hearts, and we will be uh, having something more Christmassy themed next week. As uh, Albert said before service started, uh, we are going to have, 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 have the Lord's Supper right after service. Uh, so, so, so I'll end in prayer, and we will go... Uh, we will go directly into that even though we don't have a second hour. If you have your Bibles with you, please open and turn to Philippians 2. Please open and turn to Philippians 2. Last week, we looked at Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, where Paul called the Philippians to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Perhaps you were challenged last week, as to how to do that. What does that look like in your life? What does it look like for you to be working out your salvation with fear and trembling? Or we use the phrase, to maximize upon your salvation. It's a question that we use in our small group time in this last week. How are we working out our salvation with fear and trembling? Maybe there is a glaring sin area in your life that you've been motivated to take more seriously, be more serious about rooting out. Or maybe there was a a responsibility or an opportunity that you know you've been avoiding, you really haven't been, been, been making the most of. Or maybe you just didn't know where to start. The Apostle Paul knows that the church in Philippians needed practical instruction as far as how to work out their salvation. He doesn't tell them everything it requires, but he does tell them something essential. In ways, he gives them a first step. It's a basic commitment we have to keep if we're going to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And really, it's one that Paul gives that reveals that he understands how our hearts work and what our hearts need, and and the challenges that we're facing in our day-to-day lives. So as we read Philippians 2, 12 to 16 together, listen for for what that first instruction is. So I'm going to read Philippians 2, 12 through 16. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. Did you catch it there in verse 14? This first instruction, after this gigantic, huge command to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, there in verse 14 is the first first instruction. I think it's an essential instruction how to do this. 
do all things without grumbling or disputing. It's kind of the starting point. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you, Father, for preserving this letter from your messenger, Paul, to the church in Philippi. You've preserved it for us for 2,000 years. And you know, Lord, uh, who we are here this morning. And you know, Father, the uh, challenges we faced even this morning, the kinds of things we were tempted to grumble about, the kind of things that we were tempted to dispute with you about. Lord, you know our weak, Lord. You know the burdens that we come bearing. We praise you, Father, for your goodness and that you care and that you love us and that you are gracious to us. Lord, I pray, Father, that our confidence in your character would grow this morning, would grow so much that we'd be able to do all things without grumbling or disputing. Please, Lord, give us ears that are open to hear from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, as we look at Paul's command in verse 14, to do all things without grumbling or disputing, we're going to answer two pretty simple questions. What does the command mean? We have to understand it first. And then why does Paul give such prominence to this command in verse 14? I mean, we just finished this, this dramatic, this, this, this huge and really a thrilling verse. Work out their salvation. Maximize upon it. Make the most of your salvation. And then he talks about you've got God's power working in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. It's huge. And then he goes to something that seems kind of, kind of small, something we could take for granted, something we could just skip past, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, as we come back to this uh, passage later, we're going to see in verses 15 and 16 that, that the ramifications of doing this are huge. The so that is huge as well. But why does Paul go there? So first, though, let, let, let's start with simply, what does this command mean? The, the word grumbling is a fascinating word. It just means to, 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 to mutter or complain. It's what we express under our breath. What we whisper behind someone's back. The background in the Greek is someone's complaint about not getting what they deserve it's the perception that an injustice has been done, that we've been treated unfairly. Now, in the, in the Septuagint, which is the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, right? The ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament. The word that is grumbling here translates the Hebrew word for grumble or murmur as well. And it was most often used in Exodus and Numbers, describing Israel's response to hardship after leaving Egypt. So during their time in the desert, the time in the wilderness, this word is most often used talking about grumbling and complaining as Israel often did. Now we're going to look at some more of these examples later, but let's start at Exodus 15, 22 to 24. And for now, you can just listen here. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara, which means bitter. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, what shall we drink? And that word grumble is the same word. So in the Greek version of the Old Testament, that word grumble is the same word that we get here. In Exodus and Numbers, Israel grumbles against both Moses and, we're going to see ultimately, against God. So the word grumbles to complain, to murmur, to mutter underneath your breath, to be dissatisfied and discontent. 
the uh, next word in this command, do all things without grumbling and, and, or disputing. The Greek word for disputing is simply starts off at the most basic in meaning reasoning. It's thinking about something or maybe the product of your reasoning. It's like an opinion that you have or a developed thought or, or, or an outlook on life. So Jesus uses this, this word in Luke 5.22. But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, so Luke uses that word, answered and said to them, what are you reasoning in your hearts? What are you, you dialoguing in your hearts? That is where we get the Greek word from. What are you reasoning? What are you, you're, 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 you're thinking? In Matthew 15.19, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts. And that's that same word there. It's a, a, a whole worldview. In the context of grumbling here, though, it's best to take this word as meaning the conflict or the dispute that occurs when conflicting opinions are expressed. Okay, So it's not just you have an opinion or a reasoning, a way of thinking. It's what happens when your way of thinking goes against someone else's way of thinking. When there's a dispute that occurs. In Luke 9, 46... It says, an argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. And that's that word disputing there. It's an argument. In 1 Timothy 2.8, therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and, and dissension. That word dissension is this, this same disputing word we have here. So disputing, when, when we dispute, it arises from the conviction that an injustice has been done. You've examined the facts. You've come to the opinion that you deserve better. And you make that opinion known through your arguing or dissenting. That is what the Apostle Paul says, to do all things without grumbling, without, without complaining, without murmuring, or disputing, without arguing, without dissenting. Now, the text here doesn't specify whom Paul is commanding the Philippians to not grumble against or dispute with, right? So who are they not supposed to grumble against? Who are they not to dispute with? It could have been directed towards one another. We've already seen that Paul in Philippi had a concern that the church be unified. The young church planted 10 years previously had experienced some problems with unity. Some of that was exposed as they had had opposition from, from without. So Paul in Philippians 1.27 calls them to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He called them to unity. Philippians 2.2, we see the same thing, although this describes more their, their interactions with one another. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Again in Philippians 4.2, I, I, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. All those verses show that the church in Philippi was having some problems beginning to show because of lack of unity. So there may have been, and some of that could have been grumbling against one another or disputing against one another. So, so, so it's potential that it was directed towards one another. It's also potential that it could have been directed towards the church's leadership. It is interesting in Philippians 1.1, when Paul greets them, he says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. 
including the elders and deacons. Now, it's interesting because that's the only time in Paul's letters that Paul makes a call out greeting the elders and deacons. Now, we don't exactly know what to make of that, but it's possible that he's reminding them, I'm for the elders and deacons. They are part of your church. So maybe they were having some, some friction with the leadership in the church. We might see a little hint of that, Philippians 2.29. Receive him then in, in, in the Lord with all joy. He's talking about Epaphroditus, who Paul's sending back. And hold men like him in high regard. Now, because he says that doesn't mean that they weren't doing that, but it's possible that they weren't holding their, their, their leadership in, in, in high regard. So they could have been disputing with the leadership. And we're going to see in a minute that Paul definitely has in mind as he's writing this, Israel's time in the wilderness, where Israel grumbled against Aaron and Moses again and again. But Israel's grumbling didn't stop there with Moses and Aaron. When they grumbled and disputed with Moses and Aaron, we'll see that they were actually grumbling against God, and they were disputing against God. So it's possible that Paul could be calling them not to grumble and dispute with one another or with the leadership. We're going to see that with the exhaustive nature of this command, when Paul says, do all things, right? That's all things. That's everything. I think it really shows that Paul is directing their attention to do everything without grumbling or disputing against God. I think God is the primary focus of Paul's attention here. Now, it is true, when we grumble against leadership, when we grumble against one another, we're really ultimately grumbling with God. You've probably seen that in your homes. When you are at your most unhappy and most discontent and most complaining, at those times, you are not enjoying your relationship with the Lord, right? You are, you really, you might have a problem with your spouse, you might have a problem with your children, you might have a problem with your parents, but really, your problem is with the Lord. The command here is, lit, is, is literally all do without grumbling or disputing. See, the scope of your command here, all, is bigger than your relationships with one another or your relationship with the elders, although it would definitely include those relationships, the command is all, and it means all. Everything that God has decreed for your day. Every command, every act of obedience, as you fulfill every responsibility in every situation and every circumstance. And I'm going to read that again. It's every command that God's given you, every act of obedience, every way he's called you to obey, in every responsibility he's given you, in every situation you're facing, in every circumstance of your life. There is nothing outside the scope of this all. See, Paul's concern here is for the Philippians' attitude while they do all. He could have just said, do all, and just stop there, right? If he was interested in mere compliance, or completion, or just us, uh, just us manning up, or pulling ourselves up by the bootstrap, or just checking the boxes of the responsibilities he's given us. He could have just said, do all, but he doesn't. Now, you, you could imagine, maybe some of us go through our lives this way with the many responsibilities that God has given us, just checking boxes, diaper changed, check, dishes washed, check, car flat repaired, check, ants eradicated, 
Check. Help new neighbors move in? Check. Confront a brother? Check. Get up to have a quiet time? Check. Forgive your spouse? Stay up late grading papers? Pay bills? Attend care group? Bring a meal? Obey the speed limit? Pay taxes? Brush kids' teeth? Buy Christmas gifts for relatives I don't know? Watch least favorite Christmas movie with family? Which, by the way, is White Christmas. Have awkward conversations with relatives at Christmas gatherings. All of those things. We could just check the box, right? We could just do all. And maybe that's the way you spend your days. Just doing all. Just getting them all done. Not really paying attention to how your attitude is. Are you grumbling as you go through those things? Are you disputing with God as you do them? See, Paul's all things is extensive. Everything we believe God would have us do in obedience to all of his commands. In every way he would have us respond to all of God's ordained circumstances. I'm going to read it again. Everything we believe God would have us do in obedience to all of his commands. And, 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 I, and I put that there. Everything we believe he would have us do in obedience to all of his commands. Because there's times that we have to do things that aren't in scripture, Right? Right? Like, you cannot chapter verse. You have to buy that Christmas gift for the relative that you don't really know or like. Right? But, but at times we know the right thing to do, right? We still believe that we should do that, even if we may not want to do that. Now, I'm not thinking about any relatives if anyone is listening to this. I'm just saying. <laughs> I don't think they are. But, uh, but it's also every way that he would have us respond to all of God's ordained circumstances. It's not just our obedience in light of commands. It's our response in light of everything that's going on in our lives. See, as important as the fulfilling of the responsibilities is the way in which we do them. It's not enough to check all the boxes. We must do everything without grumbling against God or disputing with him. There must be no muttering under our breath when our idyllic entry home is disturbed by our wives informing us our children need consequences. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. You love coming home. You're eager to come home. And really, it could be any number of things that happen when you come home. It could have been your dog eating your favorite pair of slippers. For me, sometimes, it might be me coming home and realizing my children are not perfect. And you're like, my home is just ruined. This is not, I, I'm supposed to be hugged by everyone. And instead, I have to do something I don't really enjoy doing. But there can be no muttering under our breath when that happens. There can't be complaining when, we're find, when we find out we're out of hot water or the internet is down. There's just not enough buffering speed and the thing just swirls. When dinner is not our favorite. We like to train our kids to say that it's not my favorite. No, I don't like this. When traffic is worse than normal. When higher taxes on gas go into effect, it can be no complaining. There must be no disputing with the Lord when he's given you a difficult boss, a parent who has Alzheimer's, or a car re repair bill you just can't afford. We can't argue with God when he gives us, when we believe. And again, we can't chapter verses, but chapter verses, but when he, we're confident he wants us to go to a Christmas event with our family or watch a Christmas movie or put up Christmas lights or buy a present for a relative you don't know. I keep saying that. We have to do all that without disputing or grumbling from the huge things to the small things. Now, I want to be clear. This command does not mean that you will not have crushing questions about what God has ordained for your day. 
Many of you are facing disappointment this morning. You expected your life to be different. You expected to have gotten married by now, to have had children. You expected to be at a different place in your profession. Some of you are going through intense physical suffering, and others through staggering emotional suffering. Some of you have gone through the worst weeks of your lives. You may not know why God has allowed you, his elected and beloved children, for whom his son died, to suffer while the godless around you flourish. But scripture is clear that you can humbly bring your confusion to God without grumbling against God, without disputing with him. Jesus, God's son, while on the cross, quotes David in his confusion from Psalm 22, verses 1 through 3. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. And what an example of there of crying out in the midst of confusion. I'm going to read from a few other psalms so that you see how to cry out in your pain and in your disappointment and in your suffering. How to cry out to God without venting. Venting is not okay. How to grieve without shaking your fist. How to question without rebelling. And here's a couple from Psalm 10, verses 1 and 2. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. Or Psalm 74, verses 1 and 2. And all these psalms would be great for you. If you're going through times, you're like, I don't understand this, Lord. Psalm 74, verses 1 through 2. Oh God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to, to be the tribe of your inheritance, and this Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Don't forget us, God. I'm going to read an extended uh, portion from Psalm 74, verses 9 through 26. You have your Bibles open. Go ahead there, because I think this is so important when we talk about not disputing against God. It does not mean that God does not want to hear our cries out to him. It does not mean that we can't be vulnerable with him. It does, me it does mean we can't shake our fist at him. Psalm 44, verses 9 through 26. And I know that this is a longer portion, but I think it's good for our hearts in this context of saying, this is not disputing with God. This is going to God. Psalm 44, verses 9 to 26. Yet, and, and first, here is a list of, of the hardships that the psalmist has. Yet you have rejected us and brought us to dishonor. And do not go out with our armies. You cause us to turn back from the adversary. And those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You give us a sheep to be eaten and have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people cheaply and have not profited by their sale. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and a derision to those around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my dishonor is before me, and my humiliation has overwhelmed me because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles, because of the presence of the enemy and the avenger. 
All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you, and we have not dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, and our steps have not deviated from your way. Yet you have crushed us in a place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. But for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Arouse yourself. And here's the question. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul has sunk down into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. Rise up, be our help, and redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness, for your Kesed love. I just want to spend some time because this is the kind of crying out to God that is not grumbling against him. This is not disputing with him. When you serve a good and wise and sovereign God, how can you not ask him these kinds of questions? These questions must go up to him. Just as Jesus questioned his own father without grumbling or disputing, why have you forsaken me? Doing all things without grumbling or disputing doesn't mean we don't ask God hard questions. But it does mean that we will not grumble against him because we think we deserve better. It means that we will not become bitter because our life is not what we had hoped. It means that we will not malign him in our conversations behind his back. Even our own internal monologues and rants. That we will not take God to task over his mismanagement of our lives. Mismanagement. That we will not presume to pronounce judgment on his character or his wisdom. That we will not dare to teach him what righteousness would really be. It means that we will submit to his will for our lives. Both the will that he has revealed in every command, but also the will that he has decreed in every circumstance. It means that we will place our confidence in his character while crying out to him. That we will remember his promises while pleading with him. That we will ground ourselves in the grandness of the gospel so that we don't forget the unfettered goodness of God's grace towards us. It means that we will do everything, both the mundane chores with all their potential annoyances and the weighty, soul-crushing responsibilities like loving our enemies, responsibilities that are beyond our human capacity without grumbling or disputing. It means that we will continue to obey, though as it says in Habakkuk, though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, Though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds feet, and makes me walk on my high places. That is what it means to do everything without grumbling or disputing. Now, I think as we talk about this more, we see how integral of a command this is, how it gets to the core of our understanding about who God is. So why does Paul give such prominence to this command? He just gives us this incredible uh, uh, command, this charge, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He called upon them to maximize his salvation. And we looked last week to how Paul motivated them. We saw in verses 6 through 11 of uh, Philippians 2. You guys can turn back to Philippians if you're still in Psalm 44. Philippians 2. 
He motivated them with this incredible picture here of Christ. He motivated them by his obedience, by his exaltation. We saw in verse 12 how he motivates them by his love for them, by how well they'd obeyed in the past, by the challenges that they were facing with his absence. Now was the ideal time for them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. And then he motivates them with who God is. He motivates them with the expectations that God has, that they're to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, with the energy that God has for them, who is at work in you accomplishing. And then also the enjoyment that God has for his good pleasure. Paul had given them all the motivation they could need. He told them that God's infinite power was effectively working within them, both to will and to act. And then Paul puts this command in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And I think he does that because he knows the danger that grumbling and disputing presents to working out our salvation. Grumbling and disputing is incompatible with you working out your salvation. It's like saying you're willing to submit to God's purposes, but not to his plan. It's saying you trust the goodness of God's command, but not his choices. Grumbling is both applying the gas on the sanctification pedal and slamming on the brakes at the same time. Okay? You can't work out your salvation. You can't say, I'm going to be as holy as possible and live your life grumbling and disputing with God. It is incompatible. You won't go anywhere. And that may be true of some of you. If you haven't been growing, I would encourage you to be thinking about this. Have I been, have I been discontent? Have I been angry with God? Have I been taking God to task? Have I been angsty because I'm not getting my way? See, grumbling and disputing is natural to us apart from Christ. It is the natural disposition of the non-regenerate man, of the who doesn't have new life. Without God's working in our hearts, we are enslaved to grumbling and disputing. Doubting God's goodness and righteousness and wisdom is what our original DNA is. And I know if you are in Christ Jesus, you have a new life and a new ability. But it's so easy to fall back into those old ways of thinking and those old habits. We see that natural tendency so clearly mirrored in Israel's example in the wilderness, following their miraculous deliverance from Egypt. Now, I already pointed out earlier that Paul's use of the word grumbling does make us look back to Numbers and, and Exodus. But it's not just that. See, in Philippians 2.15, Paul says, So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And there's several words there that point us to that Paul had in mind the Song of Moses from Deuteronomy 32. The phrase, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and, and, and perverse generation, is really Paul almost quoting from Deuteronomy 32.5. I'm going to read to you from that Song of Mo Moses in Deuteronomy 32, verses 4 and 6. The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. And then it talks about Israel. They have acted corruptly toward him. 
They are not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus repay the Lord of foolish and unwise people? Is not he your father who has bought you? He has made you and established you. But they weren't acting like his children. So when Paul calls them here to live as children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, he's making a strong contrast to this verse from Deuteronomy 32, Deuteronomy 32, 5, saying that that's not like what Israel was like because Israel was a perverse and crooked generation. They demonstrated that they were not God's children. They were not above reproach. Now, whether anyone in Philippi knew that Paul was referring to Moses' song, probably for some of them, uh, shows how much they were God-fearing Gentiles who knew, that, who knew the Old Testament, or maybe how much they had read the Old Testament since getting saved. But it was definitely in Paul's mind. See, Israel demonstrated that they were not God's children because of their corrupt behavior. Deliverance from Egypt hadn't changed their hearts. Liberation from slavery was only from slavery and not from sin. See, in a sense, Israel had an incomplete salvation. Their salvation had been dramatic. And if you've read through Exodus, you know how dramatic it was. The plagues that God sent upon Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea. They had an amazing salvation. They had God's word given to them. They had God's prophet. They had God's presence in the tabernacle. But they didn't have God's regenerating spirit. At least most of them didn't. Perhaps more than any other sin, Israel was characterized by grumbling against God, by disputing with God. Now, the story of the golden calf may be one of the most shocking examples of Israel's sin, but one of the most prevalent was their grumbling. I already read from you Exodus 15, through 24, how they had only been out of Egypt for three days when they start grumbling, saying, what shall we drink? Again, in Exodus 16, verses 1 through 9, it was a month and a half after the Exodus this time. They grumble against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Verse 3, the sons, of, the sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt. He should have killed us there when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. So graping a slave, they're saying. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Verse 8 of Exodus 16. This will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning. For the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. Here they were just a month and a half out of Israel, and they were grumbling against Israel. I mean, against God. They'd forgotten the great salvation that God had given them. Again, it happens when they had... When they had no, no water. They grumbled against Moses in Exodus 17.3. Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? You can see how disturbing this is. They saw God do amazing miracles when the plagues on Egypt. They had seen him do amazing miracles since. And they're saying, I mean, they just totally forget God's character. Why did you rescue us from Egypt to kill us here? to kill our children with thirst. They'd forgotten who God was. They didn't really believe in the God of Israel. We see this again in the book of, of, of Numbers. They uh, 
get the disturbing report about the promised land from the ten spies. Now, the other two, Joshua and Caleb, said, God is going to be with us. We're going to take the promised land. But the other spies uh, prevented a, a, a disturbing report. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. And the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Now listen what, number, what God says in Numbers 14.11. How long would this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me, despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? See, Israel's problem was they lacked faith. They did not believe God. They didn't believe in his character. They didn't trust him. They had seen him do miracles. Despite seeing those things, they think that God is just going to let them be destroyed. See, in all of these commands here, I mean, I mean in all of these examples, they had, in a sense, something valid. They had not enough water. They had not enough food. They were going to a promised land where there were lots of soldiers. But they didn't trust the Lord. See, Israel's heart was full of pride that they deserved better. Full of forgetfulness of what they had been saved from. Full of confidence that they knew better than God what was best for them. Full of disbelief that God was as he said he is. So, when Paul places this command in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And again, we saw in verse 15, he's clearly thinking about Israel here. He puts this command here because grumbling and disputing exposes the faults in our faith and reveals the health of our hearts or, or the sickness there. Israel's grumbling and complaining exposed that they needed a new covenant one which went deep into their hearts that brought new life to them. But as believers in Christ, we have that new covenant. We have God's spirit in us. If you are in Christ Jesus, if you have gone to him desperate and said, I cannot obey you without your help. I cannot satisfy you without your strengthening me. I can't obey your commands, Lord. I need a savior. If you are the recipient of that new covenant, we have God working in us to will and to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We shouldn't be like Israel in the wilderness. See, when we grumble against God, we are returning to the patterns of thinking that were normal before our salvation. It was, it's thinking that's characteristic of rebels. It's even more obvious when that grumbling advances to the point that we're disputing with God. We're taking God on because he hasn't done what we wanted. See, every time we grumble, we attack one of God's attributes. Instead of maximizing our salvation, we are minimizing our Savior. Maybe we attack his sovereignty. We attack his sovereignty, not believing he's in charge of every circumstance. Every circumstance, including the microscopic bacteria that lead to our children waking up in the middle of the night throwing up. We attack his sovereignty, or maybe we belittle his wisdom. We don't believe that he does everything in the best possible way, that he never has to revert to a plan B. 
When we do that, we're confident we could have written out a much better script for our day, for our week, or for our lives. Maybe by our grumbling and disputing, we assault his goodness. We forget that, we, that he has no ill will towards those of us who are in Christ Jesus. We forget that he's not out to get us. He's not playing games with us. He's not toying with us like a cat that's caught a mouse. When we grumble and dispute with God, we criticize his righteousness. We criticize him because he doesn't respond to our obedience the way that we think he should. Because we suffer and we're ashamed like his son rather than have an easy life or a life of applause. When we grumble and dispute with God, we defame his love. If God loved me, he would never. How quickly we forget how God demonstrated his love for us. Maybe when we grumble and dispute, we attack him as father, assuming we know better what training is most essential for us or how much discipline is too much. We say when we do this, if my heavenly father really loved me, he would. And then we finish it with all kinds of things. Every time we grumble, we are doubting what God's word says about his sovereignty, about his wisdom, about his goodness, about his righteousness, about his love. We're choosing often without even realizing it to not believe God. Instead, we choose to think things like this. Quite simply, I would be a better God. If I were God and had the use of attributes that he has, I would plan my day better. I'd plan my life better. I could be a better Lord than he is, is what we do when we grumble and dispute. We deceive ourselves thinking either, I know what's better for me, I'm wiser than he is, or he doesn't care enough to make the best happen. Really, we spend our lives craving to be the genie from Aladdin, freed from his bottle, able to wish into reality whatever existence he wants. See, this grumbling and disputing attitude is exactly what Satan wanted to foster in Eve. Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5, when the serpent's tempting Eve. You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, Satan questions the goodness of God's character. He told Eve that God is essentially holding out and giving her something better. He's saying, I know a better way than God's way. And that's what we do when we grumble and dispute with God. I know a better way too. See, when we grumble, we don't only attack God's character. We forget who we are apart from God's grace. We forget what it says in Ephesians 2, 3, how we all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We forget who we were apart from God's grace, but we also forget the extent of God's grace to us, how amazing his grace has been. First Peter 2.10, For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. See, God has been so gracious to us. His character is blameless. We don't deserve any grace from him. And then he lavishes grace on us in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? He doesn't hold back good things from us that will make us like his son. See, Paul prominently places the command here, this command to do all things without grumbling and disputing. Because working out our salvation with fear and trembling begins with believing that the sovereign God is for us in Christ Jesus. Not just that he has a general disposition towards us, but in every detail of our lives. Working out salvation with fear and trembling means that we must begin by believing that God is for us. So as we end here, do you respond by believing in God or by rebelling against him like Israel did in the wilderness? Now, maybe that's too just the tedious and the mundane and the unpleasant details of life. But also it can be how you respond to those terrifying and soul-crushing things. Have you been acting like Israel? Continually imagining better gods with better plans, even if I have to make my own. Man-made gods with man-made plans. Or are you trusting the one true God? who has already given you freely all things in his son. Maybe some of you this morning have had an ongoing pattern of grumbling in your life. Maybe you've started longing for Egypt. Instead of working out your salvation, you're in danger of forgetting your salvation, of returning to slavery because God hasn't given you what you wanted, when you wanted it, and the way he wanted it. Some of you may be in a terrifying wilderness this morning. How you respond to that wilderness is going to reveal the quality of your faith. By God's grace, it will reveal the reality of that faith. See, the God who saved you hasn't changed. Right? God who is right now is the God of the gospel. When you were saved, you came to him because you believed what he said. You believe that he is sovereign. You believe that he is righteous. You believe that he is loving. You believe that he is good. You went to him believing. You went to him because there was nowhere else to go. So as you work out your salvation, God is still sovereign. He's still righteous. He's still loving. He's still good. Brothers and sisters, if you're going to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, you have to begin by, the, begin by submitting to him in the details of your life. In the details of your life, in the details of this day. In the details of how your children respond to you the rest of the day. In the details of whether your car starts or not when you go out. In the details of whether your favorite snack is there when you get out. 
the snacks. Whether the, the trivial details or the most tragic details. From the disappointing and minimal to the devastating. Our Lord is sovereign. He is wise. He is righteous. He is loving. And he is unreservedly for you who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing held back. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the command that you reveal here. We thank you for how you command us to do everything without grumbling or, or disputing. And yes, Lord, this is about your glory. It is about your fame. It's about how we portray you in our workplaces, in front of our families, in all of life's circumstances. It is about your glory, Lord, but it is also for our good. And we trust you, Father, that this command is good. Lord, it's really almost, almost troubling, the extent here. As it says, do, every, do everything, do all, without grumbling or disputing. Father, I know that there are brothers and sisters here this morning who you have, who have put such burdens and weights upon them, Lord. Father, I pray that you strengthen them and enable them to work out their salvation by bearing under this burden that you've given them without grumbling or disputing. And yet, Lord, this also applies to all the many little details of life as well. Father, I pray that you would help us to be people that, and, and we have to be, we are people who are different from Israel in the wilderness. They never stopped grumbling. They never stopped complaining. They, they never got your grace for them. They never got how little they deserved it. Father, we do not want to be like those kinds of people. Lord, I pray that you would open up our eyes to see again and afresh how little we deserve any grace from you. Open up our minds to appreciate again the wonder of the gospel, the fact that you would give your own son for us. Lord, this is shocking and it's humbling. Lord, if you loved us with that kind of love, surely we can trust you in the mundane events of our days, through the sicknesses and colds, those things that are truly horribly hard. I pray, Father, that you would help us to reveal that we are different, Lord, to be, as Paul talks about here later, the, the people that shine like the stars in the heaven, people that stand out in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation, that we would have lots of opportunity to speak of your goodness and your grace as we submit to you, to your goodness and your wisdom and your righteousness and your love and your holiness, and your grace in every area of our lives, Lord. Father, we cannot do this apart from your Son, but because he has risen, we know that we can obey you in this way, that we can work out our salvation with fear and trembling. In Jesus' name, amen.